Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone, and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So I'm excited about the guest that we have today because he has the experience not only as an operator, as a founder, but then also before he was on the investment side. So he has been on both sides of the table. So I guess without further ado, Stuart Landesberg, welcome to the show today. Thank you for the kind introduction. Thrilled to be here. So you got your um, college degree out of Amherst State College, and then from there, you went into Lehman Brothers, probably at the worst time in history to go into finance. How was that experience for you? It was a crazy experience, sad, educational, and really formative. You know, I think there was never a day that I worked at Lehman Brothers where the stock was higher than my first day. Every day, um, you know became closer and closer to the ultimate reality. Working at Lehman at that time, I had thought that you know, organizations like Lehman Brothers were somewhat bulletproof. And you think of them as a big machine and greater than any one person. And so when the, the really, I think, somewhat tragic bankruptcy happened, it was incredible to watch the gears really grind to a halt as people stopped being able to do their job and you know seeing the extent to which even giant companies like Lehman are really just the combination of collaborative efforts of a lot of great people was a lesson that I I never forgot and nor was you know seeing I remember the managing director who sat right in front of me had been at Lehman Brothers for 30 years and famously never sold a share of stock and he was pretty sad. It was really personal. And it was a, a really quick education about the extent to which all business really is truly personal. And were you there when the actual uh, Chapter 11 and, and all of that happened? I sure was. I remember vividly. I was watching Sunday Night Football. Uh, the New York football giants were playing. I was at my buddy's house. and We might have had an adult beverage or two throughout the game. And then during one of the commercials, it said, crisis at Lehman. I saw a friend of mine walking out of the building with a box. So I called him up and said, hey, Joe, like, you were just on TV during the Giants game, number one. Number two, why are you at the office in the middle of the night packing up your stuff? 
you said you didn't hear that, that Lehman's going to file Chapter 11 tomorrow. So I went into the office after the after the Sunday night football game and packed up my stuff. And sure enough, uh, Lehman filed the next day. Wow. Wow. So I guess, hey, what was the uh, big takeaway for, for you from this experience? Uh, the biggest two takeaways were not to take anything for granted, right? The, the assumption that just because a company was big and at least by public perception successful doesn't mean that bad things can't happen to it. And again, you know, that both the success and failure of a company are truly a human experience. It, it really is all about the people and true on the upswing and the downswing. Right. And then after this, you did a little bit of, um, of a stint at a Vinecraft group. And then after that, you went into TPG growth, which I'm sure taught you a lot about the way that you see and, 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 and work with companies more on the investment side. So how was the TPG growth for you? TPG is a wonderful firm, a lot of really terrific and brilliant people there. And, you know, private equity is a an interesting industry. And my experience at TPG was fantastic because of all of the really smart people that I got to rub shoulders with. You know, the work that I was doing was a lot of junior level stuff, running analyses, putting together presentations, working closely with management teams to make sure that we could accurately portray their businesses and understand their businesses as we you know, considered investing. But you know, the byproduct of that is as an employee, you end up meeting a ton of brilliant executives and entrepreneurs in a very short amount of time, both inside of TPG, our advisors, and the companies that we end up talking to. And you know, certainly it was formative to me to see how many different styles had led to great success and also what the commonalities among the people with whom I most resonated were. And you know, I think my own style as an executive as a startup founder is definitely influenced by the folks who I most looked up to as a young professional at TPG. And what what were some of the? Um, I mean, obviously, when you're looking on the on the investment side and and you take a look at companies that make sense versus companies that don't make sense, what were some of those patterns that you were able to recognize? Yeah, I think the the biggest patterns were. CEOs that were truly passionate about their people. I mean, I will I will talk about people a lot. I love our team, and I think I have come to believe that people are the primary asset of every organization and the most important thing. And I think I, I really understood that most from watching the leaders with whom I most identified at TPG. Um, CEOs who, and, and operators who really understood their consumer and the depth of consumer insight and research that was possible to internalize and turn into really great decision-making was quite impressive and could be really difference-making in an industry. Um, and then the third thing that I took away was a comfort with intellectual honesty is an unusual but highly valuable skill. People who were able to acknowledge uncomfortable truths seemed to be, we're just better collaborators and better partners and tend to have the best businesses. Got it. And why, why did you decide to leave TPG and go into, into Tory Investment Partners? So I left TPG with one of the partners who I respected deeply, actually someone who had been an operator previously, 
And when we started Toro along many of the same themes as TPG, long-term investing, looking for companies that had sustainable competitive advantage. But TPG's was, my role there was focused in the private markets, and this would allow me to do it in the public markets. And that was exciting. And so started uh, at Toro in the very beginning with sort of just a couple of us in a room making investment decisions. And it was a really interesting experience and learned a lot of really interesting and some different lessons there as well. Got it. So then, so then at one point, you make um, the decision of uh, starting your, your, your company, no? Grove uh, Collaborative. So, so I guess at what point do you, like how does the, the idea of Grove come together? So the idea of Grove was a combination of something that I've always cared deeply about as an individual and industry trends that I saw at TPG. And, you know, I suppose, you know, those, those two things had to gestate for a little while to understand how to actually bring them together. On the personal side, I've always cared deeply about sustainability and my parents were probably some of the largest early customers of a brand called seventh generation, which back when I was a kid, I thought was the biggest company in the whole world. And at TPG, I had the opportunity to cover the grocery space and learned that Seventh Generation is actually a relatively small company in the consumer packaged goods landscape. And that non-food CPG is a category that has two really interesting characteristics for innovation. The first was that consumer preference wasn't, still isn't super well represented on shelf. What's on shelf at most grocery stores or retail stores is driven by big brands that have extraordinary marketing budgets and hundreds of billions of dollars of trade spend. And it doesn't necessarily reflect the values of the consumers who are shopping in those stores. So, you know, number one, consumer preference wasn't matched by assortment. And number two, penetration through e-commerce is still vanishingly small, less than 5%. Today, in most categories in non-food CPG, even though you know, your in-person customer experience with a bottle of glass cleaner is not worth talking about, that category is still 90-some-odd percent offline. I had a lot of conviction that the category could move from offline to online and also from conventional to natural, and that at the intersection of those two trends, it, it was possible to build a business that was both very big and that had a positive impact on the world. Got it. And, and how did you meet your co-founders here? So two co-founders, Jordan Savage, who is our creative director uh, and a fantastic guy, uh, and Chris Clark, who is also terrific, who's our CTO. And Chris and I went to high school together, so we've known each other since we were about 14 years old, maybe 13, however old you are, you are when you're a freshman in high school. Uh, and Jordan actually went to a rival high school. So I knew Jordan just, just a little bit in high school, and then he moved out to San Francisco, and um, we reconnected when he got out here. Same with Chris. And, and why did you take the CEO role out of the three of you? So you know, Grove was really my idea, um, and the initial kernel based you know, on the experiences that I had had. And Chris and Jordan, both of whom are, you know, I cannot say enough good things about as individuals, as partners, and I cannot, cannot stress how important 
or how valuable it is to have great people as partners on this entrepreneurial journey. I think both embraced it and added immeasurably in their specific dimensions to what we were bringing to market. And so you know, the three of our skill sets were quite complementary. And I think our personalities also meshed quite well in that there's a, a good shared vocabulary and also a real mutual expect, respect for the other's areas of expertise. Right. So then, so then what were, what, what, what ended up being the, um, the business model of, of, of growth and like walk us through how you guys, you know, ended up monetizing. Yeah. So, you know, when we started the business, uh, none of us had ever built a consumer internet company before. I shouldn't say that. Chris actually had a small sock business that he sold. Fanciful Argyle socks called Oberon socks. Sadly now shut down, but a story for another time. Anyway, but none of us had really built and scaled a consumer e-commerce business. And, but we spent a ton of time in the first few years getting to know our consumers. You know, there's something like 1,400 folks who work at Grove today. Um, but from, for the first four years, we went from zero to 25 or so people. So the first four years were not explosive from a growth perspective, but really, really valuable from an insights perspective. And we always knew that we wanted to take better for you product, make it easy, accessible, and affordable for consumers to switch into natural products from conventional. But in those first few years, we got a good sense for who our customer is, what he or she really values, and where we can be really differentiated in the market over the long term. And then you know, four-ish years in, we ended up pivoting the business slightly. We actually changed the name, changed the name to Grove uh, at that time. And the changes that we made based on the insights of those first four years have been the things that fueled the growth of the company so rapidly over the, the last two and a half years or so. Um, so, you know, the business model has always been about providing better products to consumers and making it really easy for folks to switch from products that our parents use, to products that are better for our homes, our families, and the planet. Um, you know, I can, I can go into more detail or, or leave it there, but it's, and- been, it's been a fun journey for sure. So just so that our listeners understand is they get like, let's say like the products that they, that are about uh, really everything that has to do with the home, they, they get it delivered and they pay a subscription fee for that. Is that it? Yes. The consumer experience, the categories that we operate in are natural home and personal care. So think dish soap, laundry detergent, bath tissue, uh, oral care, shampoo, face wash, stuff like that. And we offer a really curated selection, about a thousand SKUs, uh, some of which are from national brands like Seventh Generation, Mrs. Myers, Method, uh, some of which are from brands that we own and developed in-house. And when folks sign up, most people are opted in to a scheduled delivery service by default, uh, but there's a ton of flexibility. So Grove is an auto replenishment platform by default, but in practice, about half of our shipments are ad hoc, half of them are through auto ship, and there's a super customizable experience for consumers to make sure that people are only getting what they want 
and not other things. And there's no subscription fee. It's no problem to skip a month. You only pay for the products that uh, that you buy. And I think it's it's something that's really designed to be a service to the consumer so that our community can build and maintain healthy habits around the products they bring into their homes. Really cool, really cool. So then, so then here, like, I mean, you were talking about the pivot uh, earlier, and you know, I'm I'm I, I'm always a believer that there's not a single business plan or pitch deck that is going to hit the market and that it's going to be bulletproof. So in your guys' case, I mean, you you started to receive feedback, and and that really contributed to making or or to understanding that it was it was it was the right time or or the right decision to to change course of action. But doing a pivot is also uh, quite scary. So. So what what was the experience for you guys? I mean, obviously, once you put it out there and you start seeing the reaction, then you were able to breathe. But how was everything that that that? Why was the experience before that happened? So the first four years, candidly, were kind of a scary experience. You know, we never running in a an undercapitalized startup where you only sort of have product market fit is, in my experience, was extraordinarily stressful. Um, you know, we almost ran out of money two dozen times. And when we closed our series A, it was four years to raise our series A. When we closed our series A, I had more money on a personal credit card in the business than we had cash in the bank account. Um, you know, it was scary. Uh, but I, I have a saying that I've, I've said many, many times through the last six and a half years on this journey which is that the only way out is through. And you know, even though we, for those first four years, and four years is a long time, especially when we were, I think Chris and Jordan and I, and a lot of the people on the team had given up you know, good paying, stable jobs to come do this. Opportunity cost of our time was real and it, it wasn't sort of taken off the way startups are supposed to when you read about them. You know, that's a trying thing emotionally. And so even though we, it wasn't taking off the way we had all hoped, we were making progress and we never gave up on listening to the consumer, make a little more progress, listen to the consumer, continue to evolve the experience. And over time, you know, evolved it to a point where we said, okay, I think we've reached a local maximum, but there's, there's still a lot of opportunity in this category. So if we reposition, you know, we think there's a, a higher maximum, right? A different global maximum that we can shoot for. So when we relaunched the company, it was extremely nerve wracking, but we had built at that point, a culture of constant improvement, which I think is still really with the company today that allowed us to see this as just one more natural step in our own evolution as a business. And so it was it was scary, but it felt really natural because you know, I didn't know at the time that we were going to make this that this was the one change that was going to allow us to really get traction and, and go. Um, I viewed it as just part of constant chipping away, and you know I'd been at it for four years with with mixed results. Uh, I didn't realize year five was going to be the, the breakout. I was, was, was totally ready for another year of grinding and 
you know, the, the challenging emotional environment that grinding it out is. Yeah. I mean, no kidding. I think that normally people give themselves three years. So the fact that you were at it for, for four years, I mean, it's a, it's remarkable. It says a lot about you guys. So, so make us insiders of that breakout moment. How was, how was that like for you guys? Yeah, it's, um, it's crazy to think that I was in retrospect that I spent four years on this without seeing it break out. Um, and it wasn't like there was a breakout moment. I think, you know, after we made the repositioning, a bunch of our strategies just started working better because of the business was better positioned. And, you know, as those strategies started to work, we were able to attract better talent. And as we brought on more and more strong talent, there's a really wonderful virtuous cycle where strong talent breeds strong performance, which breeds more strong talent. And I think that's, you know, that's a little bit of what's behind the A players, higher A players say. Um, and we got into this really positive cycle where all of a sudden, for the first time, we had true subject matter experts in marketing, in product development, in a lot of areas. And that helped us scale more quickly than we ever had been able to in the past. And so we sort of got into the flywheel and it felt really good, but it wasn't like there was a moment where, okay, you know, we made this switch and things took off. You know, you sort of like look back at the end of the month and you're like, oh man, we beat plan. That was, that was cool. And then do it again. And then, you know, over time, you look at the aggregation of those results and it's been a very solid run. But I don't think there's ever a moment, and you know, I don't. I still don't feel like there's a moment of like liftoff. I still, yeah, kind of go to work every day with the same, the same feeling of it's my job to just continue listening to our consumer, continue to set our teams up for success, and continue to just make a little bit of progress every day. So, was there like a time for you when you were actually heading into the office, knowing that? that there, there was going to be a tomorrow and that you guys were going to survive. And like, maybe like there was a time where you said, I think we're into something. Yeah. I mean, I know that intellectually now that you know, the business is stable and there's a tomorrow. I still have the feeling though, which I think a lot of entrepreneurs do, that this could all go away, right? The business is performing well. The team is extraordinary. And I love my job you know, as much today as I did on the first day, which is a lot. But I think, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine who sold his business recently for a really substantial sum. And I was like, oh man, did that feel great? And he was like, you know, the day after we signed the deal was the first day that I believed the company would be around for the long term. Wow. And so I, I definitely think that a lot of the best founders and the best leaders never take success for granted and constantly feel the pressure to pressure in a good way to continue transforming the organization. I definitely feel that. And how, and how do you, how do you define success Stuart? So I define success for the company and success for myself slightly different. I mean, I think, the category that we are in as a company is one that has been defined by really brilliant market leaders over 150 years who've mastered the art of generating profit in a brick and mortar environment. 
And I believe that the category is going to go from 97% offline to, I should say, from 3% online to 40, 50% online in the next two decades. And that that transition has the opportunity to materially change not just the channel, but the products people buy and the footprint of the channel on the planet in a way that is materially positive. And so I think, you know, I define success for the company. Our, our company vision statement is that consumer products will be a positive force for human and environmental health, not just less bad, but actually more good for human and environmental health. And so that's the, the yardstick against which I measure company success. And for me personally, it's really about, can I create the atmosphere and bring the people together and set them up for success such that we have a chance at, at pursuing those goals? Because I, I, I love the potential that our category has for positive change. And I just, I feel so privileged to come into work every day with such smart people and work on the hard problems that that have a chance of changing the category for the better. Got it. And 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 in your guys' case, uh, you you've raised a bit of money. So uh, how much money have you guys raised so far? Um, I'll just say it's in the hundreds of numbers. In the hundreds of millions. I mean, I see at least they publicly it's reported 165 million. But the uh, why don't you walk us through what? Because you mentioned earlier that it took you four years or so to to do your Series A. So would it be possible for you to walk us through the fundraising journey? Sure. Uh, I can start with the very first financing, which was, you know, me uh, putting my own money in and like a couple of people who I'd worked with putting in small amounts of money. And um, yeah, and the first round was like $280,000. And I was so proud of it. Still am proud of it, I suppose. And for those first four years, we just strung together small angel rounds of I think 280, then 450, 700, then like 400. I mean, there were a lot of small angel rounds. And a seed round of like 2 million bucks. And I mean, it was close a lot of times. I, there were there were multiple times I wasn't sure we were going to get the money we needed to keep going. And what was the, uh, just, just out of curiosity, like what was that time where it was like you were like touching the cliff? Oh my gosh. I So many times. But and I, a couple that I remember in particular, we raised our seed round in January of 2016, I think. And we had signed a term sheet in December and I had gone on a trip and gotten engaged and had been a little bit out of the business for a few weeks. And December is a seasonally bad month for us, but it was a particularly bad seasonal December that year. And I remember looking, coming back from this trip where I'd just gotten engaged and I was so happy and um, looking at the numbers for December and it was like, oh my God, we are going to go out of business. Wow. Firm isn't going to fund the term sheet. We have like, you know, I think they funded and we had $40,000. I know they funded me $40,000 in the bank. Um, I had cut a personal check for like 10 grand to make sure that we made payroll. Um, like it was so close. And this group, Serious Change out of New York, they didn't, they didn't blink there. And if anyone listening ever has an opportunity to work with Josh Mailman or anyone from the Serious Change family, 
can't speak highly enough about the folks at Serious Change, uh, Next Week Ventures, MHS, who are the three largest, or, or Kensington Capital Ventures, who are the four largest participants in our seed round. Um, and you know, got that got that round done, and then uh, took us, you know, 19 months and a bunch of bridge rounds between there and the time when we had when I had twice as much money on my personal card, credit card as we had in the company bank account before we raised our Series A. And for our Series A, we went out and talked to, I think, 156 firms. Uh, 75 or so took meetings with us. We got one term sheet, and I had to beg for it. Why? I remember it's called Paul Martino at Bullpen Capital, who I also think the world of, and if folks are listening, have an opportunity to work with Paul or Bullpen, another phenomenal group. I called Paul and I was like, Paul, there's a price at which this deal gets done. Like, dude, there's got to be a price. And Paul's a really great guy. He's like, dude, you don't want to have this conversation. With <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, actually, actually, I do. And we had a couple of other potential, you know, the insiders wouldn't have let the company go out of business. Um, but, you know, that was our only viable Series A option. And so yeah. you know, that Series A round wasn't at the highest price. And obviously, you know, it wasn't a super clear story at that point that we were going to be really successful. But you know, the bullpen, bullpen's mantra is to do unusual deals. And they did this one. And uh, you know, the folks from MHS and NextView in particular, those two firms who really stepped up and supported the company then as well. And, you know, from there, the business really got a lot of traction, had a couple of, you know, plus 40, plus 45% quarters. And then we raised our series B from Mayfield in the first quarter of the following year and worked with, with Tim Chang and Rishi there who were, are both phenomenal partners, still close partners of ours today. Um, and had a really great 2000, I guess this was 2018, 2017, 2018, great, really great 2017. Um, and then raised our Series C from Norwest at the end of that year. Um, and those folks have been, again, really terrific capital partners. And so every step of the way, you know, we've been fortunate to have truly phenomenal people sitting across the table from us who believed in the company vision, you know, have been with us through when we're ahead of plan and when we're behind plan. Um, and uh, you know, I feel feel so fortunate to have such a great group of capital partners who have been with the company through you know a pretty transformative period. So, so I see that the um, the last round that you guys did was the um, Series E on December of 2018. So, I mean, it's been multiple rounds that you've gone through. I mean, from from what you're saying, um, Stuart, it seems that once you were able to really secure the Series A. It's like you got the money to really kick things in the high gear and things became a little bit easier. But you've really been on the tough side of the equation and now obviously, you know, different story. But I'm sure that you've learned a lot. Uh, what what do you think from, from going through all these multiple financing cycles, what have you learned that in terms of profile or let's say in, in pattern recognition, which you used to do that on the investment side, what makes a investor in 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 let's say um, a privately owned company great? So that's a great question. I'm going to answer it in a second, but I want to speak to two two things you said earlier. The first 
Yeah, yeah. I want to just. I'm not sure that the stuff in Crunchbase is totally accurate. That doesn't necessarily come from the company, so I, right. I wouldn't necessarily believe everything you read. There. But um, is the first I, thing I, I, I don't. I, I don't believe everything I read. So uh, no yeah. one should. So so. Yeah. <laughs> the second piece is um, is that you know the finance. It wasn't the money in the Series A that that led to the business transformation. Got it. It's a common refrain, and I've certainly said it myself, that, you know, if only we had all this money, it would be so easy. And, you know, the business opportunity is created by the business, not by the financing. The financing is a tool, but, you know, the business opportunity is is not contingent on the financing. And Alfred Lynn from Sequoia said something quite smart uh, when I was at a conference I was at recently, and he he said that oftentimes the companies in the space that have raised the least money are the long-term winners because they have to focus on their consumer. And there's a lot of examples of this. And I thought that for me, that was just a blinding insight because it really is true that a lot of times, if you don't have capital, you didn't, you end up spending all of your time focusing on the consumer, which is a really, really valuable place to focus you know, in the formative years of the business. And uh, so, you know, I, I am always excited to dispel the notion that capital creates success uh, because it's it definitely it's a, a really helpful tool on the way, but is is not a driver in and of itself. Yeah. Uh, By the way, I, I agree with you on that. And and I love Alfred, too. I, I have the uh, pleasure of knowing him personally. So a uh, really great guy. I'm probably one of the best investors out there today. Absolutely. Um, so. The, what makes a great partner, at least in my mind, I suppose there's, there's really three axes that I think about. The first is transparency, and it's got to go both ways. You know, transparency that I can be honest about what's happening in our business, what are my goals for the company and the company's long-term vision, and the investor can be transparent about his or her goals too. And you know, that allows us to understand where there's really good alignment and where there's less good alignment. And it's totally okay for there not to be perfect alignment. That's, that's normal, right? Um, but as long as there's really strong transparency and really strong trust, that creates the dynamics for a strong long-term working relationship. And so that we can both do things to make sure that our partners are successful. So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is a willingness, not just a willingness, a perspective that is long-term and positive. You know, every company has bad months and bad quarters, and our partners, and I think most really great partners, are able to focus on the long-term instead of prosecuting short-term flips. Because as a company, especially a small, fast-growing company, the resources are so limited. And you know, we end up spending resources in part where our stakeholders including our stockholders, wants us to focus. And so continued focus on the long term is so valuable to allow us as a company to also focus on the long term and to know that we have the support to stay, keep all of our long-term initiatives intact, even if there's a month where media costs are high or a month where, month where margins are different or Know, whatever it is, that we're able to continue to focus on the long term, even as the short term fluctuations happen. So that's number two. And number three is you know, a willingness to think like an owner and have. 
I think I, I've experienced investors who sort of have a little bit of an entitlement and they think the company does the work and the investor, you know, sees some of the returns. You know, our investors to a person are available to us to hop on the phone, help me close candidates. You know, I, if there's a person who wants to get to know our company better, there isn't a board member or major investor that I can't get on the phone same day to talk to that person. These people are extraordinarily busy. But if I call up Jeff at Norwest, who's fantastic, or his partner, Lisa, who's also involved, if I call up Lisa or Jeff and ask them to talk to a candidate, they'll make it happen the same day. And it's just like, because they feel bought in with me. And it's awesome to know that I have that partnership. Um, and I am, I am really grateful for, to have such, such phenomenal investors. That's great. And I think that having such phenomenal investors has also allowed perhaps to have a phenomenal structure at a, at a board level. So, so I guess talking about, about boards, uh, and especially for the people that are listening, from, from your experience, what, what makes a, a, a good, solid a board? What does a solid board look like? Yeah. So I think every board is a little bit different, and it, just like every company is different. So the first thing I would say is having a board culture that is consistent with your company culture and your operating culture is going to make it a ton more fun and super authentic. And that counts, like, especially for many of the folks on our boards, on our board, you know, they sit on a lot of boards, they're really busy. And I think our board meetings are fun because we genuinely love what we're doing and we're not ashamed to make our board meetings something we super look forward to. I mean, I think of our board meetings as a time to talk about my favorite topic in the world with a bunch of super smart people that I really like. So really, it's great. And sometimes they're hard conversations, but that's that's valuable too. So, you know, I think that aside from having a, a culture that's authentic to the company and to the people in the room, the other factors are transparency, preparation, and what I would call a sense of shared mission around seeing the company's vision get realized. Some of my best mentors and my favorite conversations have been ones about bringing more of the company's vision uh, into the room, not just our financials. And that stuff is really is really exciting. And so, you know, I, as you can probably tell, think extraordinarily highly of our management team. So I try to incorporate our management team into board meetings as much as possible. And you know, our board is excited and embraces that approach. And so I think you know it's a it's a really good transparent and ongoing dialogue, and I think of our board as our partners, not as as anything else. So um, so it's yeah I feel I think those are those are a few a few suggestions, and I think as always being clear upfront about board expectations is really important. Well, one of the things that I've seen here, Stuart, and and let me know if 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 you agree or not is that the, um, there is two types of boards. One where you are literally reporting to the board and it's more toxic. And then the other one is more like the board is working for you and helping you to really succeed and tackling the strategic issues. How do you see it? Yeah, so I don't see it as either I work for the board or the board works for me. I think of it as we all are working together and we have various roles to play. You know, I think... Good governance is important, and I think it's important that the board hold me and the management team accountable 
to the goals that we set for the company. I think that's extremely, that is one of the jobs the board plays and it is extremely important. And I, I want them to hold me and the company accountable. We wouldn't be our best if they didn't, um, you know, on the one hand, on the other hand, we all wouldn't be as successful if our board members weren't happy to hop on the phone at a moment's notice about any issue. So, you know, I think that it's, it is neither an, an either or, and board relationships are complicated. You know, I consider many of the people on our board friends, mentors, I've learned a lot from them, super enjoy working with them. And also they have real governance responsibilities at the company. And so those relationships are, are complex, but again, I think, you know, it comes down to transparency and trust and authenticity. And if all those things are present, you know, it's not an either or of the board works for you or you work for the board. It can be a really rich and rewarding and candidly super enjoyable experience. At least that's, that's been my, I think, really fortunate history. Got it. And valid points. I mean, the, what I meant with the reporting is where trust is not present, right? And yeah. then it becomes a uh, toxic. So, uh, but so, I, I'm in line with, with your point. So yeah. let's, let's just, go ahead. I mean, if anybody's listening from a tactical perspective, the board should never be surprised by anything. So, you know, if it's really important that there's no surprises and, you know, reporting to the board and the board holding us accountable means communication well beyond just the actual board meetings. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because at the end of the day, it's um, you got to prepare your board members as best as you can and share all the uh, issues that you're dealing with, not making, you know, anything look good or any of that stuff, because just just being transparent and like you were saying, authentic with whatever the company is facing, you are ultimately preparing your board members better to help you. Exactly. I think this goes back to one of the early things that I learned from TPG, which is that if the truth exists. It's always better to name it even if it's not great, right? Um, and yeah, just having a, a comfort with uh, intellectual honesty, I think is, is especially important in a board context. So, so shifting gears here, uh, Stuart, how big is growth today so that people that are listening get an idea of, of how large the operation is? Yeah, so the company is, you know, as I said, uh, right around 1,300, 1,400 people uh, who work at the company. We have seven locations across the U.S. Um, and we ship, you know, hundreds of thousands uh, to hundreds of thousands of customers a month. Um, you know, that'll give you a, a rough sense for how big we are. I mean, that's a fair amount of employees. So I'm sure that for you, it has been an unbelievable journey as well, um, you know, learning as, um, as a leader. No? So what, what, how, how do you see or how do you define leadership? I think that leadership, so you're kind to say that. I mean, I, it's, been a, it's been a crazy journey. I feel like we are 1% of the way down. I feel like we are still in the super early stages. Um, I guess you know, leadership is defined differently for everyone and in every context, and I don't think there's one definition of a leader. I think that the leaders at Grove who are most successful and, and the leaders in our context you know, are not just the senior people at the company, but they range from, you know, we had a, an associate in one of our fulfillment centers who went above and beyond in creating a really awesome video that shows what the life cycle of a particular shipment from you know, getting picked to 
going out the door isn't that was awesome. And like the above and beyond effort that he did inspired our COO who talked about it in our all hands. And it was like really awesome. And that's real leadership um, from someone who's been with the company for just a couple of months and who works on the floor in our St. Peter's fulfillment center. So I think it's people who do do their jobs in a way that sets those around them up for success. And that is really true to the mission of the organization and true to the passion that we feel for our customers. I think that kind of behavior that is mutually beneficial with our colleagues, our partners, and our customers is the kind of, of example that, that creates real leadership. And in any organization that reaches scale, you know, there's leadership all over the place, right? It's, it's, I am, I am far from the primary source of leadership at this company. Got it. Got it. So I guess the, um, you know, there's one question that I always ask the guests that, that participate on the, on the show. And that is knowing what you know now, uh, and you've seen a lot. And I know that this is impossible, but if you could go back to the past and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would that be and why before launching a business? I think about this frequently because I know so much now that I wish I knew in the very beginning. The number one thing that I wish I spent more time on in the early days was we spent a lot of time on evolving the product because of the customer, but we also spent a lot of time on positioning the progress that we had made. Like, this is so embarrassing, but I'll just say it. Like, the amount of time that we spent coming up with our splash page when we first bought the domain, it was just like three of us sitting in an accelerator. I will always be embarrassed about that, as I recall. But I don't think I understood at the time that there are really important milestones and sort of what happens in between those is, is much less important. And the thing that I needed to do was focus on getting product market fit as fast as possible, not creating the trappings of a organization that was well run or whatever. Right. In those early days, I wish I had just had, I'm really grateful. We did focus as much on the consumer as we, as we did, but we also wasted a lot of time and cycles on things that weren't ultimately value creating in the long run, but we're only there to sort of assuage short-term founder of a small business insecurities. And I wish that I could have that time back and put it back into the customer because you really, the, the rate of transformation is determined by how much customer insight you can get, or at least it was for us. And so I would, I would remind myself, that we could not put too much energy into that customer interaction. Got it. So, Stuart, let me ask you this. What is, for the people that are uh, listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and, and say hi? Uh, sure. You can find me on Twitter. It's Stu, S-T-U underscore land, um, L-A-N-D. Amazing. Well, Stuart, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, 
you can reach me at alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.